0: Hi podcast listener, welcome to Truth About Exits, a show dedicated to pulling back the curtain to reveal what it really takes to get deals closed. You'll hear directly from founders of companies who have raised capital, sold their companies, and even those who acquire other companies for growth. I'm your host, Corin Woodmass. I'm a dealmaker, advisor, and when I'm not closing deals, I love to talk to others who about their deals, and what it took to get them closed. And now you can listen into these conversations too. For all the show notes and more resources, go to truthaboutexits.com. This is part two of my conversation with Mark Sankrant on the topic of roll-ups. Now, this is a really big topic. We had to cut it into two parts. If you've not listened to episode one or part one, I highly recommend stopping right now and going back to listen to part one first. If you've already listened to part one, I hope you enjoyed part two of roll-ups with Mark Sankrant. So let's move into the operations and integration. So you've found the deal, you've financed it, you've passed diligence, your team has given you the green light all round, and they haven't been just success based. <laughs> so you have pretty good confidence taking over this company. What happens next?
1: Yeah, so I, I would start thinking about post close is, you know, you don't need to start thinking about post close on the day that you it, sign the letter of intent. That's, Probably a little premature, but definitely before you close the transaction, you need to have a good understanding of what is going to happen immediately before the transaction and immediately afterwards, right? And there's a lot that goes into that. You know, you may be acquiring a business that has employees. So you have a whole, you know, a lot of uh, potential landmines with making sure that the employees are transitioned over. You may be. Acquiring some key accounts or clients that you want to make sure that they're on board before you close the transaction. And if they're not on board, that could you know change your appetite for the business. So th- there's a whole host of planning and integration work that needs to happen well in advance of the actual close date. But again, I would think back to, you know, if you already have a business, look at the different disciplines within your business and each one of those. Or a different way to look at it, think about your org chart and each group head or department head that you have needs to have a seat at the table when it comes time to planning for the transition and the integration. So if you have an HR department, you know, they need to be at the table talking to the employees that will be coming over if you have a development group, for instance, they need to understand the code base of the business that you're acquiring or whatever it might be. You need to get your team involved in the process as early as possible because at the end of the day, you might be the one making technically making the acquisition, but they're the ones that are going to have to live with it. So you need them to be involved in the process and, and feel some ownership. And that's just going to help with the, the overall transition and and implementation so I, I would start with again developing that team that needs to be involved and putting together a checklist of all the different things that have to happen and I can tell you those checklists can be very long but planning is the key to success here and it's a lot of hard work but if you don't plan then the likelihood of you having success is going to be really slim
0: that makes total sense. And what if there's redundancies? So what if some of the team you don't need or they're in a different location? What happens or what would you think about on in that case?
1: Yeah, I would think about being a good steward of the business. So when you tell the seller that you're going to be a good steward or whatever word you want to use, it doesn't just mean, hey, we're going to take care of your clients when the business is done. It means we're going to take care of the brand that you built. We're going to take care of your clients. We're going to take care of your employees. There are always going to be situations where there's an employee or two or more that just they don't fit into the overall plan. I would try to have those conversations as early as possible with the owner. And I would also do my best to make sure that the employees that might be affected have as soft as a landing as possible. And that's not necessarily your responsibility as the buyer, but I think it goes a long way when you show that you care to the seller. And I've also seen situations where, you know, sellers get attachments to, attached to their employees and if they find out one of their employees is going to be affected, it might cause them to say, I know I don't want to do the deal. So, you know, again, having these conversations as early as possible and making sure that you're doing the right thing for your business, the right thing for their business, and at the end of the day, also the right thing and being as good of a person as you can to those people impacted, I think that's the right approach.
0: Absolutely. And I guess this goes back to the earlier comment of not changing anything for about the first year, because you don't really know what those key employees could really be doing, or maybe even who the key employees are. It may take some time to figure out who those people are, right?
1: That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. (laughs) You know, in some situations, it's going to be pretty apparent, you know, we don't need two people doing accounts payable, for instance. So it might appear that there's a redundancy there, but, you know, maybe their person's more qualified or maybe there's a different role for that person. But until you really start to understand who the the people are and what their roles are, it's and, you know, again, talking to the seller, you got to have open conversations. And yeah, you're absolutely right. You, You just never know.
0: And you brought up a good point there of they might be a good fit for another role. It's so expensive to go out and find new employees. Yes. If you've got a employee base, instead of going through and firing really fast, maybe look at how else you could use that asset because every employee is an asset. Whether they're really a liability or not, you need to figure out. But for the yeah. most part, people are a big asset to the business. So interesting to think through that. So would you have any structure of... Is there timelines that you would use 30, 60, 90 day plans for taking over the business or does it depend on the business?
1: No, I think you always should have a 30, 60, 90 day plan and not only kind of an internal 30, 60, 90 day plan, but also more of an external one that you share with the company that you're acquiring. And here's where I'm going with that. The one thing we haven't talked about And now that we're kind of talking about employee or headcount kind of conversations, one of the most important things, and usually it's the thing that can kill the success of a transaction faster than anything else, is culture. So you got to think about the transition and integration from a culture standpoint, just as much as you do financial or anything else. So it's real important And it's kind of funny, you know, all all through my education, every time I saw the word, you know, like mission statement or value statement or whatever you want to call them, I always thought, you know, why does anyone actually spend time working on those or thinking about them? Because at the end of the day, you know, they don't really matter. Until I got involved in in NNA and I realized, You know, they're not just words. If the company actually lives by it, you know, whatever their mission statement is or strives to be that kind of company, you know, that's important. And you have to start sharing that with the target company as early as possible to start helping them understand who you are and how you work and, you know, what life is going to look like when they're part of your organization. And, you you know, I I think my point being, it's worth spending a lot of time thinking about what your culture is and how you operate and what that means for the people coming over that might be operating under a totally different corporate culture. You can't make their culture fit yours and you can't change your culture to accommodate theirs. Cultures are kind of what they are and they take time to change. But what you can do is be very transparent and upfront about this is our culture and this is how we work. And make sure that everyone understands that on day one. Again, I would spend a lot of time with individual employees or having your department heads talk to the people that are going to be reporting to them to make sure that they understand their own department culture, right? So spending a lot of time on culture is probably one of the areas that I think is the easiest kind of glance over or not really spend a lot of time on. But it's probably one of the more important ones, particularly when there are people involved.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I used to cringe when I started working at very large corporations and there was culture and mission statements and all this Mm -hmm. type of thing. It really didn't resonate until I started traveling. And it wasn't necessarily just the foreign culture or foreign things that were happening in different countries, it was more the people, the expats I was meeting. Because if I found someone from the same area of Australia as me from Brisbane, we would have something in common immediately. Uh, The same is true with if you've been to the same college or done the same degree. There's all these things that make you similar. And there's almost an unwritten understanding immediately when you meet people that are from a similar culture so i guess that's where it really comes from right is is more of a yeah a country or a um, background culture so if your culture is a certain way it's important to make sure that that's understandable or explained before integrating and you often see this in really large companies but it can work in small to medium enterprises as well and especially if you're integrating more staff more headcount into your company
1: yep Absolutely. And, you know, as you were saying that, it made me think through, you know, some of the organizations that I've worked for, you know, on your first day, they would make you fill out a questionnaire about, you know, five things, you know, list your five hobbies and things that, you know, where'd you travel last summer, whatever they were. And I always kind of went into it again with that attitude of not understanding why they're making me fill out this silly thing that has absolutely nothing to do with my role. But it's exactly what you just said. It's, you know, so I say I spent my summer in wherever, not very exciting place, right? There might be somebody else in the organization that grew up there or, you know, some went on summer vacation there too. And so it's those little bonds that once you start identifying and allowing people to connect, that's really what starts to drive your culture. And again, you can't force your culture on somebody else and you can't change your culture to accommodate somebody else. But what you can do is make them feel a little bit more comfortable. And then, you know, they'll start to work into the culture. And I I think that's, you know, those little things, as silly as they might seem, they can be great tools to uh, just start to identify those commonalities between people to help them start to feel like they fit in. The other piece to that that I would say, and this is more for kind of more of the management level types, I would also think about using different assessment tools, kind of like the old school Briggs-Meyer personality tests. But, and again, this is where I, as I've gotten older and understood these a little bit more, I see what the true value is. They're not about assessing someone to figure out whether or not they're going to be a fit, but as a business owner or a manager of people, the more I understand who my employees are and how they work is going to allow me to be a better manager, right? So there's one in particular called a a DISC assessment. It's D-I-S-C. And, you know, what that tool does is allows you to understand what motivates people, what kind of personality they are. So it helps you as a manager know how to get the most out of them that you possibly can. And again, it's not about do they fit within my organization? It's about what tools do I need as a manager to help them do their job? So I would also look at things like that.
0: Absolutely. I read a book uh, last year called Principles by Ray Dalio. Have you read this book?
1: Uh, no, I haven't.
0: Yeah. So he goes pretty deep into his scorecard. Mm-hmm. sorry, baseball card is what they yeah. call it at uh, Bridgewater. Yeah. Bridgewater, his hedge fund. Um, so yeah, if you want more information on that, that's a pretty good read. I picked it up on Audible. It's it's a really good listen. And then I got the book because it's a great reference <laughs> <Yeah>. point <laughs> when it comes to um, corporate fit or personality fit to position So they take it a step further where they actually they have these baseball cards so you know what people's strengths and weaknesses are, yeah. and literally in meetings they will default to the person with the most experience. They'll listen to everyone's opinion, but they'll default to the person with the most experience in that said topic, which is is useful. Um, so it's not 100% anyone has a say, but it's weighted. The opinions are weighted, which I thought was really interesting. And that could be something as part of an acquisition that could be really interesting to find some amazing industry knowledge that you didn't have before oh, that yeah. comes across in the staff.
1: Absolutely. so
0: you might be thinking at this point aren't we talking about emanation this be all about financials <laughs> well as you and, yeah as you and I have riffed many times since we first yeah. met a lot of this stuff is is really psychology right yeah. and people are the biggest piece of whether something is a good fit or not
1: yeah and I, I have one more topic to touch on that relates to this so just with the where our world is is today, it's going to be about nearly impossible to acquire anything where there's not a remote employee involved, right? So more and more of us are working from home and lots of companies really don't care where you live. They just want to make sure they get the right person for the role. And if that person is, you know, on the other side of the world, so be it. The reason I bring that up is because that creates a whole different cultural issue, right? So, that person's not going to be in the office and, you know, interacting with everyone else, but how do you make sure that that person starts to get assimilated into the business or into the corporate culture? You know, you need to make them feel like they're part of the team, just like everyone else. You know, that's when, and this gets into a whole different subject, but kind of more on the operational side of you know, some best practices of how to run a business. But you need to start thinking about things like all hands meetings where everyone comes together on you know a set cadence, whether it's once a month or some other time frame. And you just talk about how the business is doing or weekly meetings and one-on-one meetings. You need to figure out some way to make sure that those remote people feel valuable and that they're actually part of a company. So I, I just wanted to bring that last piece up around culture.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And if you are... At taking on remote employees and you've not dealt with remote people before, maybe spend some time talking to people that do run teams like that. There's all sorts of risks and opportunities that remote work brings up. It's not all perfect and it's not all horrible either. It depends on your company that remembering that that remote worker has so much less visibility into the business is probably the first step Uh, personally what we do is we have team retreats so we work together so we all catch up in one place and and we work together on a on a fairly frequent basis about quarterly not exactly but about quarterly and a lot of the companies i know that have a ton of remote workers do something similar so yeah that can help but definitely go read up on that and you could really deep dive on that for for quite some time (laughs) but that would be time well spent i think yeah okay well this one i think we will definitely uh, split this episode in two but we do have one more piece to talk about is the exit so if you do successfully do a roll-up strategy you build everything together, you get the thing humming, you've got the culture right, the people where they need to be, and you want to go and take advantage of the multiple arbitrage that you've just created. Um, what's next, or is there more on the operations before we get into the actual exit side of things?
1: Um, yeah, I, I, th- I, think, uh, I think it's time to talk about the exit.
0: Excellent. Well, this is where everyone becomes billionaires, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's kind of interesting because... You know, most people don't think about the exit until they're ready to exit. And this could be a whole nother hour long conversation as well. But I think about the exit on day one. And the main reason is, you know, you set the strategy up around why I'm going to do a roll up or a consolidation or a buy and build, whatever it is that you want to call it. But it probably makes sense to before you dive into that to at least have a short conversation with yourself around, I want to create something that has value to somebody else at some point. So you you need to, you know, kind of think about how to build the business in such a way that it's going to have value to someone else, right? So I think about that process, you know, again, on day one and all along. You know, it's not something I just think about when we hit the artificial timeline that we set for when we're going to exit. And, you know, part of that process goes back to relationship building. As I said before, you know, in in prior companies, I always thought about who is the most likely company that we could exit to and who is most likely going to pay us a premium price And I started reaching out to those companies, you know, three or four years before we were ready to sell. And my goal at that point in time wasn't to get them, you know, ready to sell. I mean, buy us. It was really just to develop that relationship. So when it did come time for us to sell, they already knew who we were. I was on their radar screen. They knew a little bit about our business and it just made the process a lot easier. So that's one piece that I would uh, think about that. The exit just isn't what you do right before you sell the business. The exit, at some level, should be in the back of your mind, the entire build business building process.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so maybe if you could, could you talk a little bit through your exit of iNet? Yeah. Because we've talked about this a couple of times. That kind of was pretty interesting, how you guys were acquiring, um, putting the business together, and then went through the the sale process.
1: Yeah, so just a little bit of background. INET was a special interest media company. We were started off purely online, owned a number of forums and directories, all geared towards uh, niche technology markets like web development and web hosting. And we developed an acquisition strategy to start building onto the pieces that we had. So we moved into affiliate marketing, we moved into data centers, couple other areas, uh, other developer resources. And we also, so we not only used acquisitions to expand what markets we were in, but we also moved into conferences and trade shows. So we added new capabilities via acquisition as well. So we were pretty deliberate with, you know, what things we would look to acquire. It had to be something where we either already had a core competency and knew once we made the acquisition that we would be able to positively impact that target or if we were acquiring a new capability we had to feel really strong about the team that we were acquiring around that new capability so again we were very deliberate and with our process over a five-year period we acquired nine businesses technically probably more like 12 but a few of them were pretty small but we grew the company i think i was employee number nine And when we exited, we grew to about 55 employees. So we had to get really strong with cultural integration. And, you know, we went from a very small entrepreneurial feeling company to you know not a big company by any means of 55 people. But it certainly felt more like a bureaucracy by the time we exited than it once did. Right. Mm -hmm. But so throughout that process, you know, I was always thinking about the exit. And, you know, we knew that for us to have a successful exit, we needed to hit a certain size to be of appeal to the larger buyers, more strategic buyers. And we also knew that we had to continue to keep a pretty tight focus. So, you know, again, we were in niche technology markets, it wouldn't have made sense for us to go acquire a media property that was focused on fashion, for instance, right? Because the the likely buyer of us was going to have interest in technology. They weren't going to be interested in technology and fashion. So we were, again, just very specific about what what areas we would move into. We were very disciplined on, you know, what we would pay. And ultimately that that resulted in a, a very nice uh, exit for us to a strategic buyer that identified the markets that we were in as uh kind of core to their vision. And at the end of the day, I'd say we got, you know, a a bit of scarcity premium. And what I mean by that is we pretty much owned the web hosting and data center markets. So if anyone wanted to move into those markets, the only way they could was really by acquiring us. So it was a, a pretty good position for us to be
0: in. So you'd built a pretty significant moat of our acquisitions and growing intentionally. Yeah. One of the most interesting pieces about this story that we've talked about before is that despite you were spending a good couple of years meeting strategics in the space, you still went for a traditional sales process with an investment bank Absolutely. and the ones that you were talking to didn't actually end up being the buyers or the acquirers at the other end. So could you talk through um, why the company decided to go for a a sale process, what that looked like, and then a little bit about that acquisition, if you can.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, and and I'm partially saying all this in a self-serving manner, but partially not. (laughs) It's just a lot easier to have An advisor or an investment bank to run a process for you. It ensures things stay on track. It ensures that you're able to remain as unbiased as possible about assessing the deal. It's nice to have a buffer, and it's also nice to have some mystery, I guess, to the process. And what I mean by that is, if I would have just reached out to one of the strategics that we thought was going, going to be the buyer and dealt directly with them, they have all the negotiating leverage, right? If they're the only ones that are at the table. When you have multiple parties at the table, it's, it's kind of like the uh, lending tree commercial. When banks compete, you win, well, when you have more than one buyer at the table, the seller is going to win, right? So it was important for us to, you know, we, we had outside investors. It was important to us to ensure that we were maximizing value. And we felt that the way to make sure that uh, we were able to maximize value is to have an investment bank and run a traditional auction process. And it, uh, you know, it was a very smooth process. Um, I think if we would have tried to go it alone, I think it would not have resulted in the the transaction that we had. Um, but yeah, oh, go ahead.
0: Oh, I was just going to say, so with an auction process, could you talk through just what that means? And was there a set timeline to that?
1: Yeah. So in conjunction with us, our investment bank put together a list of, oh, it was probably 160 to 180 prospective buyers. And we set, I believe it was a two or three week time frame. So the investment bank reached out to all those parties with a little bit of information about the company with instructions on when they could submit an initial indication of interest. And once those indications were received, then we would select the parties that would move forward to the next round. And the next round entailed being able to do more, a much deeper level of due diligence on us, at which point the remaining parties would submit a bid. And then we would take the bid and then transact with with that winner of the auction, if you will.
0: Great. So it creates a level playing field, but also creates a timeline. And we've just finished a 21-day process on a deal uh, last week, actually. And it was interesting that a lot of those interested parties all kind of waited till the last minute, but they were all very aware of what that timeline was, (laughs) (laughs) Um, partially through us reminding them, but also that... Whole cycle really works. It, it seems like artificial timelines, but sometimes that's the way to get people moving. I had a, a call, the podcast that I just recorded before yours was with Chris Rollings from Judo Launch. And he was saying he did the same thing when he was raising capital from VCs. He said, You always need to have a timeline in mind. Yeah. Otherwise, people just won't act. I think yeah, it's just general human nature.
1: <laughs> yeah. You don't make decisions, especially hard decisions, until you absolutely have to. There's no
0: question about it. And I think another piece of this puzzle is to really be able to run an auction process like we're talking about here. You need to be a certain size and you need to be in a position to be appealing to the types of firms that are used to being involved in a process. If you run a process on a deal that's too small, you could actually scare off a lot of the buyers, I'm speaking from experience here, if the deal is too small, and this is out of step with the market. So this is really for lower middle market deals, let's say 10 to 50 million plus in revenue is really where this starts to become the norm.
1: Yeah, and I would look at it, you're absolutely right, there's a size threshold, but I would also just look at it from, uh, do you know who the likely buyers are? And if you can't say who the likely buyer of your business is, then you probably shouldn't be in an auction. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple, obviously, because the investment banker m and advisor is going to have to reach out to parties, right? But it's a very proactive process. And if you can't develop a prospective buyer list and know that those parties, there's something about your business that, that they would find attractive, then yeah, then it doesn't make sense to, to have an auction. You're absolutely right.
0: Absolutely. So how do you think, as probably more with the advisor hat back on, how do you think about financial versus strategic? And what do those two terms mean to you?
1: They mean less and less, it seems like, each year that goes by. So historically, it was you know believed that strategic buyers would pay premiums or be able to pay more than financial buyers. For the most part, that's still true. And the reason is because they already have operations, there might be some redundancies or some cost savings that that the strategic buyer has that a financial buyer doesn't, which allows them to pay more and still generate a comparable IRR. But the reality is financial buyers are increasingly acting like strategic buyers. And what I mean by that is, you know, we started this conversation off talking about roll-ups. And if you look at, the playbook of a lot of PE firms it's let's identify a platform business and then do everything we can do to support the growth of that platform whether it's organic growth or inorganic growth via acquisitions so while a financial buyer might technically not might not be a strategic buyer they might be transacting with you on behalf of a portfolio company which makes them more of a strategic buyer that that's one piece And the second piece is the reality is private equity firms are sitting on a ton of cash that has to be deployed before, you know, the end of their limited partnership where they have to return capital to their investors. They need to deploy the cash. And if that means they have to be more competitive with their pricing, then then that means they have to be more competitive. And so what you've kind of seen over the past several years is there's not a huge disparity between financial buyers and strategic buyers, but there still is a little bit
0: of one. Absolutely. So I'm just going to play novice here and just translate a couple of these terms we've been talking about. (laughs) So number one is IRR. So if you're not in the investing world, internal rate of return is what that is. You can Google that later, but this is return on capital, right? Internally. That's what investors use to value or to project forward what their return on capital should be. So that's a really important term. So dig into that in your own time. But the next couple of pieces I'd like to explain is financial and strategic. So typically, a financial buyer is a buyer-motivated by the numbers, essentially. And you also mentioned platform. So I'm going to explain those two and then we'll go to strategic. So a financial buyer, for the most part, could be a private equity group, like you said, Mark, with a a fund with cash to deploy in a certain period of time. Now, where the platform piece comes in could actually take that financial buyer and make them more strategic. Now, a platform is a certain size deal that they start with. So I actually met with a private equity firm here in Austin. They started with a services company in a set niche, and that was their platform. So they found a business that was big enough with enough infrastructure that they could then go and make add-on acquisitions. They just actually closed an add-on acquisition for this company when we met up. So that was their roll-up strategy is looking for a platform piece first it was a vertical in the service industry and then they could add on to that business and then they were looking for more platform deals so this company being a private equity group is both financial as an overall so they could look at multiple different industries but then if it is an add-on acquisition for that platform That may actually make them more of a strategic buyer, which means they have synergies in that space. So they could bring that unfair advantage we were talking about earlier is really what we think of when we say strategic. And both Mark and I have worked on a deal where we found a strategic that would actually pay less than financial buyers on a deal, much less. So it's not always the silver lining that you think it could be.
1: Yeah. No, and at the end of the day, everyone, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about discipline and even strategics have discipline and, you know, there's not a way to argue that and it is what it
0: is. (laughs) And also just to close out the loop on uh, translating some of the terms here, you mentioned portfolio company. So once the business is acquired by a private equity firm, it's referred to as a, a portfolio company. So that company, if it's owned by a private equity group is somewhat strategic and somewhat financial so that really blurs the lines there as to um, what acquirer you would prefer but what I agree with you it's not anymore it's not really just strategics that you'd prefer to go with in some cases a financial somewhat strategic buyer may want you out of the deal quicker (laughs) and that may actually align with your goals as the seller so
1: yeah absolutely right Absolutely right.
0: Cool. Okay. And what else would you think of when it comes to exiting a business or before going to exit the business?
1: Yeah, I guess I can't say it enough, but just the planning that should go into it. And again, it's it's not planning three months in advance. It's planning when you start your business or it's planning from the day that you acquire a business. There's just a lot of th- lot to think through about how to create value. Part of that's operationally, but it's also making sure that you're creating an asset that someone else wants to acquire. And there's a lot that you can do throughout, you know, however many years you own a business to prepare for that exit. And it's one piece that I think the advisory community could do a better job on with educating business owners on some of the things that they can do to maximize their value. But the reality is, lots of people don't do any sort of exit planning, and I'm gonna say this somewhat facetiously, but not really. People spend more time preparing to sell their houses than they do a business, and you know, I I would challenge <laughs> any business owner listening to uh, you know really think through you know how they're gonna maximize the value of their company, and it's not just about the operational pieces. It's it's about preparing for that that final exit.
0: Absolutely. And to stay on theme, because I know we'll have many more discussions around exit planning yeah. in general, but if you have done a roll up, you touched on this before with INET, you guys weren't looking at any type of web property, you were staying niche to yeah. tech related stuff. And you were thinking about who would want to acquire this business. It's quite easy to think, well, it It may be easier because if you're not going with a vertical approach, if you're just picking up whatever business you find and putting them together with operations, that may be easier to find because like we mentioned before, brokers, investment bankers will have lists of businesses that they're marketing and you could easily pick up a few of these if the numbers made sense. But then on the other side, if you're looking to maximize value and you're doing a roll-up strategy, you may want to stay really niche specific or vertical specific to make sure you appeal to that next level of buyer. So I think that's probably the most crucial piece is figuring out who's likely to value the business. And then obviously, when is the time to start going to market?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, that process isn't always easy, right? Sometimes you have to make some really hard decisions. And while we were very disciplined with our overall approach to markets, you know, halfway into our life cycle, if you will, we made the decision to move into conferences and trade shows. And that was a hard decision to make because we knew going into that, that once we added a a live event, that the pure play online media companies that were out there were no longer going to have an interest in us because now we had these events. But we also knew that there were a lot of media companies that were moving into the event space and that you know, yeah, we would lose some prospective buyers, but we might gain some others. That was one piece of it. But the second piece was it just made a lot of business sense. So sometimes, even though I just said everything I said about preparing, sometimes you need to live in today and do what's right for the business today and not purely focus on the exit. But for us, there were so many synergies between having an online media property and a event that. Was very closely connected, right? So it made total business sense for us today. And it also, we believed, would make business sense for us at the exit. Little did we know that ad technology was going to come along and make it very difficult for, you know, online media companies. We lost a lot of the competitive advantage that we had as a result of ad tech. But it was these events that kind of really kept a lot of the uh, value in the business. So we absolutely made the right reason. I don't think we made the, or I'm sorry, we made the right decision. I don't think we knew why that it was the right decision for this reason at the time, but it it turned out to work for us. But yeah, it's, you got to think about the future and make sure you're building an asset that someone else is going to want.
0: Awesome. So I think that's been a a great conversation on roll-ups. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that I should have asked or anything else you'd like to add as a final thought on roll-ups?
1: I had thought about just some of the, you know, throughout the conversation we talked a little bit about some of the challenges. I think we covered the benefits pretty well, you know, using acquisitions to supplement or augment organic growth. Um, As long as there's purpose and discipline behind it, I think it makes a lot of sense. From a challenges standpoint, you know, there are definitely a lot of challenges that we talked about. One is you're running a business already to start undertaking acquisitions is very time consuming. So I think about the team, whether it's hiring someone internal to focus on acquisitions or looking to an advisor to help you with developing a, a buy side strategy. I think that's important. Making sure that you have proprietary deal flow and aren't just purely looking opportunistically the more you look at deal flow, the more you're going to learn about what is going to be a good fit and what isn't. And then the secondary piece to that, and it might be more important though, is the more deals you do, the better you get at doing deals and you learn very quickly about mistakes made in prior deals. And that is kind of the core to, you know, earlier I mentioned something like 75% of all M&A fails. The companies that have success with M&A, or serial acquirers, it's they're doing it on a fairly consistent basis. So they have a process around it. So they know exactly what to do around integration and culture and everything else we talked about. So I would think about that also. And then, you know, we talked a lot about not being afraid to say, no, you know, you got to do the right deals for the right reasons. And otherwise, you know, if you, if you're doing deals just to get deals done, you're you're probably going to lose and you have to be patient. Integration is a key piece to success with M A. So you know, focusing on culture and staff, and, and you know, selling the vision is all important. Size. We didn't get a whole uh, talking a whole lot about size, but I've also seen a lot of situations where companies make much larger acquisitions, and maybe they should. And they, you know, pervert, it's kind of they bite off more than they could chew. So I think about that piece, <clears throat> and then lastly the. I guess the last guidance I would give, and we talked about this a little bit, is just making changes too fast. And again, you got to ease into it. And on day one, you just got to sit back and kind of understand what you bought before you start tinkering around with things. And once you do start tinkering around, make sure that you can kind of project what the result is going to be. And make sure that, you know, if you turn a knob or pull a lever and things don't work out the way you thought that they were going to be, that you can quickly (laughs) adjust it back to where it was. So I think from a challenges standpoint and just general advice, I I think that's kind of how I'd sum up the uh, conversation today.
0: Awesome. Well, Mark, this has been super helpful. I've enjoyed this conversation as always. We've actually got two new things that we do at the end of each podcast. So number one is, do you have any books that you would recommend or other resources related to roll-ups that you would recommend people read?
1: Oh, I not specifically. I think any book around people, I I would focus more on the people behind roll-ups as opposed to stories about the actual deals, or, you know, finance type books, because I think the people that have had success with roll ups, it's not that they're financial wizards, or they have really good deal teams, it's they had a really good vision. So any, you know, any book about a business leader that talks about their vision, and how they implemented their vision, I think that's probably where I would start.
0: Awesome. Okay, I would recommend checking out I Love Capitalism from Ken Langone. Uh, He talks a little bit about this. He was an investment banker and became co-founder of Home Depot and a bunch of other companies. So, yeah, awesome book. I I loved it. And also, when you mentioned acquiring a larger company, it made me think of The Fish That Ate the Whale Um, and blanking on the author's name, but that's also an interesting story around that. So that's cool. And instead of saying how people can reach out to you... and and ask for more help because you've been very, very open with your advice here. How can people help you? What do you need help with?
1: I'd like to talk to people. (laughs) (laughs) So even if if there's ever anything you want to talk about, I would say reach out to me. And again, I'm about building relationships and I'm a believer of karma. So, you know, even if you don't need help and I don't need help from you, that doesn't mean we, we shouldn't chat. So I like building relationships and adding to my network, and I invest a lot of time in both of those pieces, and I'm I'm a firm believer that I might meet someone today, and maybe we don't do anything for 20 years, that's okay, it had to start someplace. So I guess the way you could help me out is introduce yourself to me, and then let's talk about baseball or something else, and then maybe we'll end up doing something work-related.
0: I love it, Mark. So how is the best way to reach out to you? And we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah,
1: I, w- I would say uh, LinkedIn. Again, Mark Sandkrant it's probably the easiest way or just email me directly. Uh, you can reach me at mark with a K, M-A-R-K at blueashcapital.com.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for jumping back on the show, mate. I know we're yeah. um, we're planning many more conversations, but this has been awesome.
1: Yeah, same here, Corin, I appreciate it.
0: Thanks, mate. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Truth About Exits. Now, whenever you're ready, here are three ways I can help you. If your company is doing between 10 to 50 million plus in revenue and you want help to plan your perfect exit to achieve the highest value and best deal terms possible, Or if you'd like advice on acquiring other companies to continue to grow your company, we can help. Go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. There you'll see a simple form to tell us a little bit more about you, your company, and your goals. And my team and I will take it from there. So go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. The second way I can help is become a guest on our show. If you've had a successful exit, you want to share your story, or if you're actively acquiring other businesses and want to share your criteria with our audience, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash guest. Let's connect and I'd love to talk to you. The third way I can help you is one of my favorite things in the entire world is is sharing the truth about exit stories with other entrepreneurs by speaking at events all over the world. So far, I've had the privilege of speaking at events in the US, Canada, UK, Spain, Germany, Ukraine, Czech Republic, over in Asia, China, Hong Kong, Thailand, and even Australia. If you'd like me to speak at your next event, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash speaker and tell me a little bit more about your event and we'll go from there. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.